very uh, important, very important study here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I hope that you've been encouraged as I have. Just read, starting in verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the, t- the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. For these past few weeks, we've been studying what the Bible has to say about eldership, about the leadership of the church. Today, today we will finish this study. Uh, we have diligently studied the scriptures for the structure of the church over these past few weeks. Uh, over the, actually, really, starting last year when we went through a, a 17-week series on the church, the purpose of the church. And today really is the culmination of that study as we have applied what we've learned to Grace Bible Church. And today we will conclude in our study of the structure of the church's leadership. Now, during this time of studying biblical, what we'll call biblical eldership, we have seen, we have, we have seen four crucial aspects, actually the first three crucial aspects of biblical eldership. First, we've looked at the definition of biblical eldership. We called that the characterization of biblical eldership. Elders, then, we saw, are to be shepherds at heart. They are to feed, lead, and protect the flock. They are to be spiritually matured, meaning that they've been tested. They are to be overseers by description, so there's a responsibility that they've been given based on who they are, based on their character, based on who God has made them to be. We know from Acts 20 that it is the Holy Spirit who set apart the overseers. And we also saw that they are a plurality by God's plan, meaning that there are multiple elders. There's not just one elder, not just one elder serving by themselves. Secondly, we saw the call to biblical eldership, or the call to eldership. We saw that, that it's crucial to the body because the, the, the overseer is there to, to protect and lead the body and to teach the body. We saw that it is confined in description, meaning that God has called the men to be overseers. We've seen that it's captivating to the man, meaning that he has been he, he is led by the Holy Spirit to desire the work, and it's confirmed by the church, meaning that it is evident in the man, that, that God makes it evident when a man is gifted to be a, 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 an elder, that is, or made to be an elder, given the desire to be an elder. Thirdly, we saw the charge to eldership. We saw that the office of overseer is high in accountability. 
meaning that, that God holds the overseer, he holds them responsible for the spiritual uh, uh, temperature of the body. He, he has a high, there's high accountability. He will answer to the Lord for the spiritual temperature of the body. He will, he will answer to the Lord for how the body has been led and taught and protected. If he allows evil to come in, he will, have to be, he will be judged for that. So that it's honorable in practice. That it's an honorable, it's an honorable job. Though it's difficult, it's hard by nature, we saw that. It's difficult, it's hard, that it's an honorable job. It's an honorable responsibility. That, that God is, holds high those who, who rule well. The, the scripture even says that we are to, to uh, ha, count worthy of double honor those who rule well. First Timothy 5. Now last week we started the fourth aspect of, of this fourth crucial aspect of biblical eldership. The character of the eldership. We saw that the, the character of, of the elder must be exceptionally pure. Now during, during our last time we studied this. Starting in verse 2 we saw that the overseer is to be above reproach in all areas of his life. This is a necessity. His life must never give, his life must never give the false teachers or those on the outside reason to attack his character or the church's reputation. In other words, any accusation against him will never stick because he has impeccable character. Now we studied verses 2 and 3 last week, which gave us the character traits, if you will, which must be present in the man's life before he can be considered to be or for the office of overseer. Now, based on these verses, I thought it would be kind of fun to, say, to, to th- look at it this way. Based on these verses, if we were to place an advertisement in the, the, in the paper, you know, I think they still do that, right? They still have advertisements in the paper. If we were to place an advertisement in the paper for overseers, this is how it would read. Looking for a few few spiritually mature men. They must be sexually pure and sober-minded men. If married, they must be devoted to their spouses and manage their own lives well. If not, if not married, they must, be, they must diligently serve the church with all purity. They must be lovers of strangers, but not lovers of strong drink. They must never get drunk with alcohol or use any other mind-altering substance for anything other than medical purposes. They must never settle any argument by coming to blows. They must be gentle, men of peace, who are never greedy. And they must be skilled teachers of God's word. Now, I don't think that we would get many responses from this ad. Right? I don't think there would be, we would see many similar employment ads. The bar is just too high. The bar is set very high, but it... It really, what we have to understand is that the bar, the bar is set high, but it doesn't stop there. Not only do they need to be exceptionally pure, not only do they need to, to meet these requirements for the job, they must also be empirically proven. That's the second point, empirically proven. Look at the text, verse 4. Paul writes, he must be one who manages his own household well. Now, we've seen that the overseer must be 
exceptionally pure, which speaks of those outward qualities which reflect his inward purity. He has dealt with those sins deep down. He's dealt with those sins so that, so that his life is impeccable. When I, when I say dealt with them, he's repented. He's turned away from those sins. He's dealt with them at a, at a, at a level that is, that's deep before the Lord. But these qualities, then, these qualities then are a reflection of who he is in his heart. They don't, they, while they're a reflection of who he is in his heart, they don't necessarily speak directly to his ability to lead the people of God. Let me say it this way. He can be all the, of those things in verses 2 and 3 and still fail miserably to lead others. I believe that these next verses, verses 4 and 5, actually through 7, these next verses reflect the necessity that the man be a true shepherd of God's people, a true leader of God's people. And I think what we're going to see is, is that the home is the best test for the effectiveness of a man's shepherding. As such, a man's family is the best reflection of his ability to shepherd those in his charge. If he fails at shepherding his children's heart, then he will fail at shepherding the church. If he fails to care for his own wife, then he will fail to care for the church. If his home is full of chaos, then it stands to reason that the church will be out of control if he is given charge to lead it. If he rules his home by lording over his wife and children, then he will rule the church by lording over the people. As such... The overseer must be one who cares for his family, showing that he can manage that which has been entrusted to him. Therefore, the the man's leadership of family proves whether he should be given responsibility to lead the church. It is in the day-to-day responsibility of leading a family that reveals a man's ability to lead in the larger context of the church. Now, I believe that it's instructive if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, I want to show you how Paul uses the metaphor of the family to describe his own ministry among the Thessalonians. So if you turn there briefly, 1 Thessalonians 2. Here Paul describes the purity of the, of his first, of the missionaries, he and the other, the other missionaries' first visit in Thessalonica, where they, were, where they first gave them the good news of the gospel. And in verse, chapter 1, verse 9, he speaks of them uh, turning to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So he's speaking of this time that he came to give them the gospel. And, and there had undoubtedly been people who had came in, who had come in and attacked them and attacked his ministry and said that it wasn't pure. And we see that and some of the things that, that Paul says, especially here in verse chapter, or chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pre- pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. This, this is the first thing I want you to see, starting in verse 7. Again, Paul describing his ministry to the Thessalonians in terms of family. He says this, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having 
having so fond an affection for you that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives, because you had become very dear to us. <coughs> Paul really here, really, Paul here reminds them, reminds them that they, how, they had condu- how the missionaries had conducted themselves. They acted like mothers who care for their own children. Here we can hear Paul's heart for shepherding towards God's people, and in doing so, he uses the description of a nursing mother who gently cares for her children. The Thessalonians were dear to Paul. It's pretty clear as you read through this. Therefore, he was willing to give himself entirely, just as a mother does for her child. Now let's keep going. He says in verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging. Now this is what, this is, really listen to this. And imploring each one of you as a father would his own son, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, I believe it's very instructive that Paul uses the metaphor here of the father. He, he uses that to describe how he came alongside and he encouraged them. According to the text, he implored them. Literally, he testified to them like a father does to his own children. Now, this description of the relationship between the shepherd and his flock is very instructive to us. How the shepherd comes alongside and he witnesses to the flock and he teaches them and he exhorts them. He wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the God who called them. Just as a father wants his own son, his own children, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Now back in 1 Timothy, Paul wants Timothy to understand that when looking for those who would shepherd the flock, you must look no further than the man's family and the shepherd's interaction with them. So Paul says that the overseer manages his own household well. The word manages means to preside or have authority over. It can mean to exercise a position of leadership. Leadership, it means to direct, to be at the head of. The same word is, is translated rule in 517. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. This clearly shows the, a link between, the link between leading the home and leading the church. In the home, it is God's plan for, man, for men to lead their families. Just the same, it is God's plan for men to lead the church. Now, I'm going to get a little bit into our cornflakes this morning, men. Men, are, men tend toward giving up the role of leadership because we all have a tendency toward laziness and indifference. Brethren, all men, all men are lazy. And all men can be indifferent, at least to some degree. The question is whether they have acknowledged these vices and worked to overcome them. In other words, have they been trained by a willing man or a, a mature man who is willing to put the mirror up to, their, to show them their sinful tendencies? 
Now, some believe that these inclinations are part of the curse. In Genesis 3.16, it says, To the woman, he said, this would be the Lord, I will greatly multiply your chain of pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, these tendencies, uh, according to those who point to these verses, is that, that the man, or that the woman, her desire will be to lead the husband. And he will let her lead until the point where he gets enough of it, and then he will rule over, him, over the, the woman, usually in a physical way. Now, I'm not sure if that's the case, but I do know this for certain, and the reason I bring it up is that these tendencies to be lazy and indifferent in terms of leading the family uh, does come from our fallen nature. We are fallen. We are fallen people, and therefore we tend to fall down in what we are, are tasked to do. We know that man, that Adam failed to protect and lead his wife as, he, as she was being deceived by the serpent. He also failed in believing God's word and keeping God's word. After the fall, man's rule, man's rule is now marked by laziness and a profound lack of, of diligence and a propensity to lord over his family. We know that. I mean, that is clear as we, as we witness men and their ten, sinful tendencies. Left to his own devices, man will never, let me say that again, man will never care for his wife and his children in a way that pleases the Lord. We can see this truth play itself out day after day in many homes. We, we see it as women and children suffer at the hands of cruel men. Domestic violence is some of the, some of the most difficult things to work through. Brethren, here's the point. It can never be this way with those who lead the church. It can never be this way with those who are charged to lead the church. This past week, Angie and I spent a couple of days away. And we went to the Kennedy Space Center into Epcot, and at Epcot we met a nice young couple from New Jersey. They had two kids. But in our short time, we, it became clear, as we had discussion with this, this man, it became clear that he had not grown up, that, that he, though he had two children of his own, he, he had not, he, he, he refused to grow up. I mean, just to give you an idea, he was sneaking alcohol onto the rides and having a good old time. And his wife, you could just see the pain in her face. He might have been fun for the kids, but he clearly didn't grasp the responsibility of being a husband and a father. Now, as it were, when you go to a place like this, you see several examples of things like this. And we were in line for funnel cake. My, my wife, Angie, loves funnel cake. If you know her very well, you know this love for, the, for this funnel cake thing. But she, we witnessed in line another couple with three kids. The youngest, a girl, was playing by a trash can while her mom attempted to coerce her to come back by reminding her that wasps like sugary trash cans. The oldest, who was a boy of about five or six, was sitting or sitting in the stroller while the middle child was sucker-punching his mother. The children were clearly out of control. And the most poignant moment came when the funnel cake arrived. Yes, they were feeding these kids copious amounts of sugar. But when it arrived, 
He was so excited, he even took a picture. And he was completely oblivious to, the, to what was happening around him. He was more concerned to feed his kids sugar and give them a good time at Disney than he was to ensure that his children were under control. He was completely oblivious to the great damage he was doing by not shepherding his children. It says that, but according to Paul, overseers must be those who manage their own households well. It can never be said of a of an it should never be said of an overseer that he does not manage his household well. It can never be said of an overseer that his children are out of control. This word well can also be translated excellent. The word not only speaks of that which is inherently good, but also speaks of something that is outwardly good, beautiful and appealing to the eye. The overseer must be one whose leadership in the home is not only intrinsically good, but is also visibly good. Now, we need to be careful here. I think you might see this coming. We can easily swing the pendulum to the other side. On one side, we have a man who is completely disengaged from his family. He is lazy and insolent and doesn't care for discipline or instruction. On the other side, we have the man who is engaged in the wrong way. He doesn't want to do the hard work of training his kids and washing his wife in the Word, so he just lords over them and forcing them to become great actors, hypocrites on his grand stage. Men, we... When we become aware that the expectation is that our family is to look good, then our sinful tendency is toward behavior modification. That's the point. That's the point. When we become aware that, oh, this is a requirement, then our tendency is to make our children uh, stand in straight little rows and muzzle our wives so it appears that we have a well-managed household but it's all for appearance's sake. Here's what Chuck Swindoll says about this. You want to mess up the minds of your children? Here's how. Guaranteed. Rear them in a legalistic, tight context of external religion where performance is more important than reality. End quote. Therefore, we must recognize, we must recognize that this word that we must manage our households well, this word speaks of the home appearing beautiful because it is intrinsically beautiful. Let me just say that again. We must recognize that this word speaks of the home appearing beautiful because it is intrinsically beautiful. Now we should completely define the man's responsibility. What does it it mean that his, his household literally means house or home? But... Clearly, Paul has more in mind than the management of, of, Paul, or of, his, of the man's physical property. I would contend, based on this word household, that it includes his family, his wife, his children. But it also includes every aspect which is connected to his family, including his family's assets. The man must have good control over his family's finances. He must be involved in making the necessary budgetary decisions to ensure that his family is secure. He must not put his family in financial peril. He must be willing to work hard to support his family and falling into crisis due to poor decision-making. He must be a good steward of the resources which God has provided him. 
Luke 16.10, our Lord says this, He who is faithful in a very little thing is also, also in much. And he who is right, unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? So the, so the, the man should be, must, be, uh, must be managing his family's assets. Secondly, he must be managing his family's associations. He must ensure a good relationship with the extended family cannot allow the in-laws to rule the life of his family. He must set proper boundaries with them. This is the, the principle of leaving and cleaving. Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his wife and his mother and be joined to his wife. And they, I'm sorry, For this reason a man should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So he must, be, he must have set proper boundaries with the in-laws. Must have a, a good relation, ensure a good relationship with them and a proper relationship with them. He must also have a good understanding of his family's of his family's friends. In other words, he must know who's influencing his wife and his children. And he must be dealing with that in the in the right way. So he again, his family's assets, his family's associations, also his family's assurance managing his family's assurance while he trusts in the Lord and knows that the ult- that ultimate protection comes from him the man does not do anything that would needlessly put his family at risk he works and gives up his own comfort to ensure that his family has a safe and comfortable place to live within a reasonable expectation of course Charles Spurgeon when he was contemplating the purchase of a home for his family he very nearly decided against it he didn't want to seem pretentious. But his deacons extorted him, exhorted him by saying this, He that provideth not for his own, especially for, for them of his own household, has denied the faith, faith, that is, and is worse than an infidel. So the, the, the overseer must be one who has, who has dealt with, who, has, who, who, who is taking care of his family, who, who's family is dwelling secure because of his hard work he does nothing to put them at risk lastly he should manage his family's adoration beloved your family will worship something your family will worship something whether it's money or possessions or power or associations Money, possessions, power, or associations, or anything else, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. The man who manages his household well will always point his family back to Christ. Always point his family back to Christ. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on on your gates. 
These words, what, what Moses said, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them. You should, as you go along your way, you, you talk to, the, to your children, you teach your children uh, the, the, the ways of the Lord, the word of God. It's what a, a man who loves the Lord, who manages his household well, well does. Let's keep going in the text. It says, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Keeping, this word is translated having, could be translated having. This gives us the idea that the overseer always has his children under control. Even when they are seemingly out of control, this man calmly handles his children in a dignified manner. He is always, he is clearly then engaged with his wife in caring for his children. He is neither aloof or nor overly emotional. The aloof father holds himself above the fray. He's seemingly unaffected by the chaos around his family. He doesn't care about the chaos because he doesn't have to deal with it constantly. He sits in his easy chair, and he expects his poor wife to handle the children. I'm reminded of the, of the gentleman at Epcot. He was more concerned about that funnel cake than he was about those self-centered little monsters he was, he was raising to terrorize the world. And you might think that I'm being harsh, but I'm telling you that those children grow up to be monsters if they're not dealt with property, properly. When your friends visit, when your friends visit, the aloof man holds court and expects his overworked and underappreciated wife to keep the children under control. He comes in after a long day at work and expects that his wife has everything under control without his involvement. In some cases, he's, a, he's unavailable to his wife due, a, due to attachments at work, whether due to travel or great responsibility at work. The aloof father is too involved with his work to take an active role in shepherding his family. There are times when the aloof, fa- aloof father will let hobbies such as hunting, fishing, or golf sort of supersede his responsibilities at home. He might even be distracted by his own extended family his in-law, or the in-laws finding that to be more important than his own family, his own family under the roof, that is. In extreme situations, the aloof father has other more seedy associations biting for his attention. I think you know what I mean. On the other hand, the overly emotional father responds to struggles in the family with flashes of anger. Some of us can display outbursts of anger while others just boil just under the surface, avoiding involvement by ignoring the problem which again turns back to the aloof father. But this one is just burning with anger. He's, he knows what's going on, but he's angry about it, and he's not willing to deal with it. But the problems just fester and become bigger problems as the children grow. Now, I'm going to honestly tell you, if you're like me, you see yourself in all these scenarios. And I'm talking to the men here. There, there have been a great many times when I've been aloof for reasons of work or a hobby. There have been times when I expected my wife to shepherd my children. There have been many times, as my children would attest sitting here, that I have succumbed to anger. And there have been other times that I've tried to avoid the problem altogether. That goes back to that lazy and indifference, right? 
that we are lazy and indifferent until it becomes a major issue, and then we decide to, to blow up. Now, you're probably asking, then, what is it supposed to look like? We've talked about what it shouldn't look like. Well, what's it supposed to look like? Paul says that the overseer must keep his children under control. This is a military term which speaks of lining up and rank under one's authority. According to this passage, the elder's children must be respectful, trained, and well-disciplined. This control will be clearly seen in their respect for their parents. Billy Graham says this, A child who is allowed to be disrespectful to his parents will not have true respect for anyone. End quote. A child who is allowed to be disrespectful to his parents will not have true respect for anyone. End quote. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So according to this verse, fathers must be consistent in their relationship to their ki- or with their children. They should never do anything that exasperates their children. In many houses of Paul's day, and even now, fathers rigidly rule and dominate their families without due consideration of the wife and children. The Christian father must not make unreasonable demands or overly constrictive rules which provoke their children to anger or despair or great resentment. Because this type of of atmosphere will breed rebellion. Will breed rebellion. But Paul says to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Christian father, and and, and, in turn the overseer, must discipline his children. This is the negative reinforcement that can come in the form of the rod and also includes other negative responses such as restrictions now we can't completely cover this here because it's not our subject but the lord expects us to lovingly discipline our children and that includes lovingly spanking them the man who neglects the discipline of his children fails to give them the proper boundaries in which they can thrive Children, beloved, are always searching for their boundaries. If you ever watch them, you will see them always searching for their boundaries. And as adults, as parents, we need to teach them what is safe and unsafe. Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You see, beloved, God gave us pain. God gave us pain to teach us boundaries so that we won't injure ourselves. That's the reason why it's when we feel pain when we touch a hot oven. When a child touches a, touches a hot oven, he feels pain. And he gave us that pain so that we won't further injure ourselves. Now I'm going to say this very carefully. God also gave sensitive bottoms for us to guide our children in the right and right and wrong. Proverbs 13, 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Beloved, it's no different. This is no different than us in our Christian walk. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12, 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
So when we're being disciplined, for the moment, it may seem, it may seem not to be joyful. It's not joyful to go through the pain of discipline, beloved. If you're a child and you're being spanked, it's not, dis, it's not, it's not joyful to go through that pain. If you're a child and you're enduring restriction because of something that you've done, it, it, it's not joyful at the time. But it's, it's sorrowful, is what, is what the writer of Hebrews says. Yet, by the, to those who have been trained by it, been trained by what? By the discipline that they've been given, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I tell my children all the time that we give them boundaries. And if they, if they stay within those boundaries, there's tons of freedom. They get to do a lot of things and enjoy a lot of things. But when they, when they cross the boundaries, there's discipline. And the boundaries actually begin to close in until the point where they're constricted because they can't, they're not doing what is right before the Lord. The man who is an overseer must do all of this with dignity. With all dignity, that's what Paul says. This word literally means a manner of mo- or mode of behavior that indicates one is above what is ordinary or there- and therefore worthy of special respect. This word has the idea of holiness. In other words, the man is to handle his children in a dignified manner which is above what is ordinary and worthy of special respect. Again, to remind you of the context, Paul didn't want those who contradict to be able to grab a hold of something amiss in the overseer's life. Having children who lack control give outsiders something to grab a hold of when attacking the church and its doctrine. So what will this look like? Let me give you a few items we should be looking for. The man is clearly immersed with his family. He's not aloof, but clearly has a close relationship with each of his children and his wife. He does not avoid dealing with problems within his family. There are times, frankly, that it can look messy, even to outsiders. If given, but given time and effort, one can clearly see progression in all situations. There are times when, when it doesn't look good. But you can see progression, and there's a beauty in that progression. When he's available, the man always takes the lead with all disciplinary actions of his children. He doesn't expect his wife to handle the issues. He supports his wife even when he's absent. He teaches his kids to submit to their mother when he is not around. And he takes the lead with teaching his family, especially teaching them to fear the Lord. So we see that the man is clearly immersed with his family. We also see he's clearly involved with his family. You've heard the the expression, the buck stops here. The godly man always takes responsibility for his own actions and for the actions of his family, including his wife and children. The man takes every opportunity to guide his children. And, and his wife in the ways of the Lord. So when they step, when they, when they are out of line, when they do cross those boundaries, he takes those opportunities to guide them and to teach them in the, in the ways of the Lord, specifically to fear, fear God. John Piper says this, The happiest and holiest children in the world are the children whose fathers succeed in winning both their tender affection and their reverential, reverential and loving fear. 
and they are children who will come to understand most easily the, the mystery of the fatherhood of God, end quote. Now, I need to address something here. Paul in 1 Timothy 3 speaks of managing his own household. But the question is, do children have to be believers? Now clearly this is not a requirement of 1 Timothy 3. It just speaks of the relationship of the man to his, to his, to his children. In Titus 1.6, though, it's, in the NASB it says that the overseer must have children who believe. But in the New King James and the King James, it says faithful children. And I think in the ESV, it says children, believing children as well. Now, I don't have time. We don't have time to completely unpack this problem. But I can simply say that there are two main camps. And we've already talked about it. Either the first camp is that, that Paul is referring to in Titus 1.6, if you want to turn there to see it. In Titus 1.6, that Paul is referring to believing children. Having children who believe. Or he's referring to faithful children. Now, I want to em emphasize here that both are exegetically possible. Meaning that both, you can, the, the, the grammar works for both. And there are good men in both camps. Now, I feel a little bit. I wish I had more time to really unpack this, but I just want, I'm, so I kind of feel like I'm dropping a bomb and then leaving it. But based on my understanding of, of the purpose of both passages, I believe Paul refers to the children's relationship with their father in Titus 1.6. Now let me just say, let me give you the reasons why. The qualifications that Paul gives in both passages, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, are, they focus on the outward manifestations of the man's character reflect, which reflect his heart. So the purpose of these qualifications, then, is to ensure that he cannot be accused in his character, which is indicated by his behavior. Now, we cannot truly evaluate whether children are believers or not. But we can evaluate their behavior especially their behavior toward their father. Now, this, this fits with Paul's further qualification in Titus 1.6, that they not be accused of dissipation or rebellion. If, you look, if you're there in Titus 1.6, you'll see that. It says, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So that indicates, seems to indicate that, that that, that further qualification seems to indicate that, that he has a focus on their outward behavior. So I think that Paul calls for the children then to be faithful in their relationship with their father. Therefore, he's not referring to their relationship with God. In other words, he's not referring to belief. And again, there are good men on both sides of this. And I have been on both sides of this. I have, I've reflected on it. I've studied it. I've, I believe that Paul's, I think what's happening here, and the, the reason why I end up falling this direction is because it harmonizes with 1 Timothy 3. In other words, Paul says that a man must keep his children under control 
with all dignity in 1 Timothy 3, which harmonizes with a requirement for the children to be faithful to their father. But I want you, to, I want to, I want you guys to all to know that it's, that it's a close call. Ultimately, here's, here's the kicker for me. Ultimately, Titus 1.6 is the more unclear passage. It can go either way exegetically. 1 Timothy Timothy 3 is incredibly clear. So when I harmonize the two, I have to take 1 Timothy 3 as the more clear passage. So Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3.5, But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? This simply is a rhetorical question to reinforce what he's already said. There is no way a man can rule the church well if he does not rule his own household well. In other words, his leadership must be empirically proven in the crucible of his own home life. That's, that's Paul's point. So we've studied the first two points. The character of the elder must be exceptionally pure. In other words, he must be above, above reproach in all areas of his outward character. Any accusation against him will ultimately fall flat considering his character. His character has been demonstrated to be above reproach through testing over time and has been demonstrated to be pure. Secondly, his character is empirically proven. In other words, he's demonstrated leadership of his family. A man can have upstanding character and be a poor leader. But the overseer must demonstrate ability to lead his wife and children in a dignified manner. This indicates that he can lead the church in a similar fashion. So now let us look at the the last point. The character of the elder must be evidently practiced. Verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul says that the overseer must not be a new convert, not newly planted or newly converted. In other words, he must have time under his belt. He must be one who has proven faithful and true over time tested this fits with the spiritually matured aspect the the overseer must be one who has proven to be fruitful in his christian walk i remember a young man who became a believer not too long after i did he seemed to be on fire for the lord he he even briefly considered christian ministry he literally went out to a to a bookstore and he purchased enough books to start what any pastor would consider a, to be a good library i mean invested tons of money in this. There was no reason for any of us to doubt his authenticity. But a couple of years later, problems began to arise in his life. And ultimately, he and his wife divorced and he fell away from the Lord. To my knowledge, this young man, now older, has never returned. Never returned. On fire for the Lord. Wanted to be in Christian ministry. It would have been incredibly damaging to the body of Christ had he been given responsibility to lead, the, lead them. Even though he was on fire for the Lord and he was growing and he, was, and he seemingly was ready, he, he would, he, it would be incredibly damaging if he had been made an overseer. You see, Paul says that appointing a new convert can cause great pride to well up. Pride and conceit are grave concerns for every Christian, but is especially of great concern to those who are given power to lead the church. J. Oswald Sanders says this, 
Pride ever lurks at the heels of power, but God will not encourage proud men in his service. End quote. Let me say that again. Pride ever lurks at the heels of power, but God will not encourage proud men in his service. Clearly, this statement applies to every man who would desire, to every man who would desire leader, excuse me, leadership in the church. But it is a, a special concern for the man who has been newly converted. The word that, that Paul uses for conceit means to be puffed up. It's related to smoke, so it means to be puffed up like a cloud of smoke. It, it also came to me being blinded or foolish. In other words, the man becomes puffed up and is blinded by his own inflated sense of worth. The text says, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the fond- condemnation incurred by the devil. See, Paul draws a parallel to Satan who became puffed up, even believing that he was on par with God. This condemnation does not refer to Satan's condemnation of us because he's not our judge. It refers to his condemnation that was incurred before God. You see, the the puffed up and blinded new convert will fall into the same kind of judgment pronounced by God on Satan and his followers. His sinful pride, Satan's sinful pride caused him to be cast down. This This is the grave danger awaiting the man placed in a position of spiritual leadership before he's ready. Proverbs 16, 18 warns, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, haughty spirit before stumbling. Paul goes on to say, He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, he must have a good testimony or witness with those outside the church. The English word martyr is derived from the word that Paul uses here. He, the, the overseer must have a reputation in the community that is impeccable, testifying to his over, overall character. He must be respected by the community. Therefore, he cannot be one, one who preaches one way and lives another. He must be a man whose words and actions match. He, as such, he must never be able to say, do as I say, not as I do. When his words... And actions at odds, speaking of the overseer, when his words and actions are at odds, he gives an opening for opponents of the church to ridicule him and the church. And when our lives don't match our doctrine, we give them an opportunity to ridicule our doctrine. A man chosen, John MacArthur says, a man chosen to lead the church must maintain a reputation in the community for righteousness, moral character, love, kindness, generosity, and goodness. All will certainly not agree with this theology, his theology, that is, and he will no doubt face antagonism when he takes a stand for God's truth, end quote. What he's saying there is, is that he must stand, he, he must be not, must not be known for vices He must have a reputation for righteousness and moral character and for love and kindness and generosity because people will disagree with his doctrine. And they cannot be able, they should not ever be able to hold, grab hold of anything about his life that's a problem. You see, we're constantly reminded how our reputation matters. Even in politics, we see how one's message can be obscured by their behavior. I, I shudder to think. I shudder to think 
how much damage has been done in the name of wrapping arms around this or that political party or figure in Christianity. Think about that. Because of the reputation of the, of the man or of the party. As Christians, our character and reputation must always be exemplary among those who contradict us. When we try to be friends with the world, we are in danger of falling into disgrace and we're fitting ourselves for the snare of the devil. That's Paul's point. We're fitting ourselves for the snare of the devil when when we're not walking in a worthy manner. He wants, the devil that is, wants nothing more than to disgrace God's servants and set the trap for them, taking them out of useful service. So we've seen the bar is set high for those who would lead Christ's church. Even though the bar is set high, we still need passionate men who are capable of leading. We know Christ Jesus has provided those men. He will raise them up. He will give them passion for his word. He will give them to diligent study of his word. J. Oswald Sanders says this, spiritual leaders of every generation will have a consuming passion to know the word of God through diligent study and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. End quote. So we know that those men are out there. We know that God is, is raising those men up and the Holy Spirit will set them apart. He will give them a heart to shepherd their families. He will give them a heart to live holy lives before God. He will give them a heart for the people for whom he died for whom he shed his own blood to redeem. He will give them a longing to preach the cross where Jesus Christ died for their sins. He will give them a passion to proclaim his great name, the name above every name. He will give them a desire to warn people of their impending doom under the wrath of the Father if they don't turn to the Lord in saving faith, trusting in his sacrificial work on the cross. Beloved, please, I beg you, please, Pray that Christ would raise these men up at GBC Gainesville. Pray that Christ would protect these men. Pray that Christ would test these men. Pray that Christ would raise them up and give them a passion to study His Word and to lead God's people and to proclaim the cross and to, and to live uh, passionately proclaim His name. Pray that He would give us men who would warn us of our impending doom if we don't trust in Christ. If we don't follow Him. We desperately need it. The world desperately needs these type of men. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again. As you know, this is, uh, as you know, Lord, this is a hard sermon. A difficult sermon. Lord, I pray that your word would bear fruit. We trust that it wouldn't return void. We thank you for your fact that you have given us your word so that we know how to live, so that we know, Lord, of your goodness and loving kindness and grace. Father, it's been, again, a difficult sermon. But we do live by your grace. We do live according to your word. But we know that 
you're full of loving kindness. It says of the Lord Jesus, he's full of grace and truth. So Lord, we know that it says in the word that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And though this has been hard, we fall upon you. We fall upon your grace to teach us, to guide us, to keep us. Give us and raise up men who truly have a heart for your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.